1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Great stuff, Dom, and thanks so much. Hi, everybody. Stocks are up today with the Dow hanging on to more than a 500-point gain right now, even as we're coming off the best week since 1938 pretty big stuff. And this also, despite the plunge in crude oil prices again today, crude breaking below $20 a barrel. We'll have more on that shortly. But there has been some slightly better news today out of Italy, with the country reporting its lowest number of new COVID cases in two weeks. And right now, the Dow is still about to close out another losing month. In fact, uh, the first time since 2008, we've been negative every month of the first quarter. Let's get out to Bob Bassani uh, with more on today's market action. Hi, Bob.
2: And we are just essentially at the highs for the day. And I am somewhat encouraged, not just by the good news from Johnson & Johnson and Abbott on the coronavirus front, but on the market internals. Things are changing a little bit. The way the market looks is changing a little bit. So here you see we're up uh, more than 60 points on the S&P, essentially at the highs for the day. But when I talk about the market internals changing, what's changing? Number one, I'm seeing noticeably lower volume today than we've seen in the last few months, uh, last month, essentially. Volume's been double normal. We're getting more towards a normal volume today, uh, we've seen a much tighter intraday trading range. It's only 2.5% in the S&P 500. In the last few weeks, 5 6% on a daily basis. That's why the VIX has been at 70 or 80. But wait a minute, today, the VIX has dropped below 60. That's the very, very low end of its recent trading range. This is different than things have been in the last couple of weeks. Hopefully, it's indica- it indicates some calming down of the markets. It certainly does at least for a half a trading day. In terms of sectors, well, it's about 4 to 3 advancing to declining stocks. So, things are over all over a little bit. Healthcare, obviously, and Abbott and Johnson and Johnson leading the charge there on their good news. Tech's been outperforming. Banks were notably underperforming in the first hour and retail, of course, still not doing very well. But I'm continuing to watch those market internals and I'll pay attention to that. I think the VIX going towards the 50s. Certainly a very good sign for things calming down. Guys, back to you. And,
1: Bob, this was even as we got that awful Dallas Fed survey this morning, dropped to a level that was closer, maybe even worse than it got to in 08. What does the market's yeah. kind of shrug in response to that tell you? I mean, to me, it would suggest a lot of really bad news is priced in.
2: Right. Remember, we're expecting really awful economic this news, news this week, particularly uh, non-farm payrolls reports, which everybody is, is shuddering at. But remember, um, this time, Monday, last week, we were down 35% from the highs to the lows. Now, we've had a little bit of a rally, uh, not nearly as much to the downside. But Goldman had the key point. If you see progress on the coronavirus front, that's going to be the key thing that'll be moving the market. And that's why we're up today, because we're seeing some progress. We're not seeing death rates go down, but we are seeing vaccination possibilities uh, dramatically increase. And we've got a a test that might be 15 minutes, that's real progress. And the markets are responding to that.
1: That's a great point. We're going to get Meg with the latest there in just a moment. Bob, thanks. Bob Bassani. Uh, In the meantime, let's turn to the stunning jobs announcement of the day. Macy's will start furloughing the majority of its employees starting this week. Shares of the company fractionally lower on the news. Courtney Reagan has the full story for us now. Hey, Courtney.
3: Hi there, Kelly. Yes, so Macy's is joining several other retailers like Build-A-Bear, Tilly's, Steve Madden, furloughing the majority of its workforce amid these still widespread store closures because of the COVID-19 outbreak. So the employer sent a note to its its employees today, basically saying that while the e-commerce operations are open, Macy's has lost a majority of the sales due to store closures. The department store does say, look, it's already taken measures to shore up its financials, like tapping into that $1.5 billion dollar line of revolving credit, suspending the dividend, freezing hiring, canceling orders. The CEO isn't taking a salary. Other salaries have been cut, but frankly, it's just not enough. So that means now Macy's, Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury are, quote, moving to an absolute minimum workforce needed to maintain basic operations, meaning that the majority will be furloughed this week. Fewer are going to be furloughed in the digital business. That's going to remain open, but still some likely will be moved to a furlough situation. Health benefits, will continue through at least May for those that have them, and Macy's will be picking up 100% of the premium. Once things get back to normal, Kelly, Macy says it will try to have staff return, but in a staggered manner. I think we're still a number of weeks to go, though, until we can even begin to consider that. Kelly, and, back over to you. You know,
1: Courtney, I'm glad you mentioned what's going on with the health benefits, because that's been kind of an under-discussed piece of this. Yes, there's relief money coming from the government for businesses. Yes, there's beefed up unemployment benefits for workers, but COBRA is really expensive if you get laid off. And in Macy's case, maybe one of the benefits of keeping people granted on an unpaid leave is that you do get those health care benefits, which could be vital right now.
3: Absolutely, Kelly. And I think this is sort of a key point that many of these retailers are trying to figure out when their stores are closed. They know that they don't need that labor right in this moment. But what can they do if the employees aren't able to get paid even at the full salary to make sure that they're taken care of from a health perspective? And so in this case, Macy's is going to cover the premiums for those that are already enrolled in the coverage. So we know, of course, Macy's has a lot of part-time workers that may not be getting healthcare coverage through the company. So this is not necessarily every employee that gets a paycheck from Macy's all the time, which is likely going to be the case with a lot of these retailers. I think they're all looking really hard at the financials to do what they can to take care of their employees, but it's going to be situationally dependent.
1: No, absolutely true. Uh, All right, Courtney, thanks. We really appreciate it. Courtney Reagan with that story. Macy's probably isn't the last of it either. A new headline on CNBC com saying the coronavirus could lead to job losses that peak at nearly 50 million people and the unemployment rate hitting 32 percent. Now, this study from the St. Louis Fed does ignore the impact of the fiscal stimulus. It's just a back of the envelope uh, method, as they call it, to try to impact estimate how big this impact could be. Joining me now with more, Matt Maley is the chief market strategist at Miller Tabak and Hugh Johnson is chief investment officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors. It's good to see you both. And Matt, I'll begin with you. Um, you know, I guess it's important to know, to have a sense of how bad the information could be, because it's going to look really bad. And I guess the idea is, you know, to try to take the sting out of it when it hits so people understand, look, this is the size of the hit we're potentially talking about. But here are the things that we're doing to try to get it back down as quickly as possible. Right.
4: Yeah, there's no question, and it's and, you know, good. You want to hear those, uh, instead of those gradual things that keep rolling out, well, it's going to be 10% unemployment, 20%. Let's get the worst-case scenario out there and, and it, so the markets can price it in, as you just talked about uh, uh, on the earlier segment, that a lot of these things are starting to get priced in. But one of the things that also does concern me, though, is that it's going to make it, you know, give us uh, the, v, uh, the chance of any kind of V-shaped recovery is going to be very tough. With that many people losing their jobs, uh, whether it's the right number, something less. Uh, and the concern that the coronavirus could hit us again in the next fall, so people are worried about, geez, I might get laid off again, even mm-hmm. if they get their job back, is, is going to keep them from jumping back in in a big way. And of course, uh, the consumer is a very important part of our economy.
1: You know, Matt, what are you looking at right now? I know obviously you're paying a lot of close attention to kind of the market feel and a lot of the technicals and a lot of different things like that. What, what jumps out to you at the moment?
4: Well, I mean, one of the things is the Russell 2000. Well, two things. Number one is that when this forced selling, uh, you know, comes to an end like it did, you know, two weeks ago, it was just massive in, in every, basically every single market. Now that that's subsided, the markets bounce back, kind of, you know, uh, hit a vacuum and bounced back. So what happens next? And one of the things I'm looking at is the small cap of Russell 2000. Uh, that, you know, it's bounced back very nicely. It's been a great leading indicator for many years, and especially the last few years. If that rolls back over and takes out uh, its 2016 lows, that's going to be a problem. If it can hold, it should be a a good sign.
1: And, Hugh, you've been looking at the history of how the market and the economy have reacted to past pandemics. What does that tell you about the episode we're going through now?
5: Well, it tells you the most important thing, which everybody should keep in mind, and that is whether you're looking at pandemics, epidemics, whether you're looking at bear markets or corrections, the one thing they all have in common is the end. And that's really important. Now, of course, every one of them is different, so you don't know exactly how they're going to end. So you've got to really look at everyone differently. And quite frankly, I've been doing that. And especially looking at the pandemics, the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu, the Spanish flu, and then a lot of the epidemics since 1980. Um, It's hard to learn something from them, quite frankly, except Mm -hmm. other than the fact that they end, is that I would guess this one's going to be somewhat short-lived. In other words, somewhere in the six to eight months when we talk about the decline in stock prices. I think when we talk about the decline in stock prices, looking at history, that the answer is we've probably seen the worst. That's very important. We may go down and in the Wall Street says retest the lows. And that's a real possibility. But I think when we'll, I think we'll do that in the third quarter. But I think that'll be it. The one thing that we're we're not is we've got more duration to this. So. I wouldn't be surprised to see for the next, say, four to six months, a period of a sort of a trendless and very volatile market setting the stage for some time in the third quarter to start a recovery towards what's going to be a much better economic and earnings environment in 2021. This doesn't look like it's going to last a real long time when I look at history.
1: You look at sectors. Healthcare is one of them, utilities, consumer staples. And I see a big focus on dividends and dividend yields. I mean, that's such a moving target right now. Do you feel that those are the areas you can kind of most count on?
5: You got, Kelly, you got to really look at, at financial market history, and financial market history is very clear. There are defensive sectors, things that work well in a bear market, which is what we're in. Consumer staples, healthcare, utilities—they work well. What I'm saying is a trendless and volatile market, and what I'm saying is keep your defense on the field. In other words, I think you still have to have your guard up, just in case I'm wrong, and in a case the market not only retests the lows but goes even lower. I don't think. That's in the cards. But keep your defense on the field. When we see things like Matt's talking about, such as we see small cap stocks start to perform well, Mm -hmm. we start to see signs from the financial markets that things are turning. Then you can go from defense to offense. But it's too early to do that. That will come, I think, in the third quarter when we're looking at
1: 2021. Matt, I'll give you a quick last word on that before we go. Yeah and I agree
4: with you and also some of the uh, technology stocks have always been r- really uh you know riskier names and tend to go down a lot more but some of the high quality names like Apple and Microsoft and even um uh, 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 I'm sorry well Amazon, some of those big Netflix names, yep Facebook? Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry. Uh, these ones have, act, have, done, have not underperformed this time around because they're such an integral part of our economy, uh, unlike it used to be. We're not being run by the generals anymore, General Electric, General Motors. Uh, we're running by these key companies. The, uh, tech as a whole is still quite risky, but some of the big cap names, they're nowhere near as risky, and they actually can be a, a good defensive play uh, in markets like this, which is a big change from the past.
1: Yeah, I blame Google for this whole alphabet thing. It trips me up every time. Uh, guys, thank you both. <laughs> It's good to see you today Matt Mailey and Hugh Johnson Shares of Johnson and Johnson are up today on news that the company could have a vaccine ready in record time they're nearly an 8% gain today Abbott Labs also announcing some positive news of its own as you heard Bob Sani referencing Let's bring in Meg Terrell now with all of these key developments Meg what can you tell us
6: Kelly, these timelines are just mind boggling for vaccine development. We have never heard of a vaccine get developed uh, this quickly before. Johnson and Johnson saying today it selected a lead candidate for its vaccine development plans to start human testing in September, potentially have that vaccine for broader rollout in early two thousand and twenty one now we 've got a picture here to give you kind of a layout of where we are across the spectrum on vaccines, including modernas which started human clinical trials um, already this month now. If they're both successful, we could see multiple vaccines potentially being available in early to mid 2021. And that's not even counting developments coming from Pfizer, also Sanofi, which isn't pictured here. So a lot of shots on goal. J&J's CEO Alex Gorsky joined Squawk Box this morning talking about how this is a company's moonshot. Take a listen.
7: We expect to begin first in human testing in September, but in parallel, as you know, not only do you need a a safe and effective vaccine, but you also need to have one that can be produced in very large volumes. We're gonna be doing that at risk simultaneously right here in the United States. And uh, and we expect to have results, interim results, at least from our trials, likely in December at the latest early January, that should put us in a position early in 2021 to literally have hundreds of millions of doses available. And then by the end of the year, up to a billion.
6: And as we wait for effective vaccines and treatments, testing is going to be key to the response Abbott announcing uh, the approval from the FDA of the fastest test yet—five to thirteen minutes for uh, results. This can be performed in doctors' offices; it doesn't need to be shipped to a lab and then have the results be returned. And they say they plan to supply fifty thousand tests per day. So, folks, really thinking about this as a potential game changer for the testing landscape,
1: Kelly. Back yeah, no, to you. it's fantastic. Quick follow-up on the tests and their reliability. You know, the journal has a story today about a surgeon, a doctor who was tested for coronavirus the first time, came back negative. He knew he had it. He got tested again. Sure enough, it was positive. Anecdotally, I've heard people who feel like they clearly have contracted COVID-19 have those tests in the, in the struggle that they go through just to get them, have those tests come back negative. Do you think that there's been, I mean, do we know anything about the reliability of these tests? Because I understand that it is obviously an important part of, of getting these out quickly is making sure that they are reliable.
6: Absolutely. I've been talking with experts about this, and they do say there could be some variability in the quality of the tests. However, those that have gone through the emergency use authorization process from the FDA do meet a certain standard. Now, there are questions about uh, when in the course of the infection you get tested and when that will show up. So it's possible uh, folks were tested, you know, too early or there just wasn't enough virus in their uh, sample uh, to show up on the test. Um, So certainly there are possibilities. Um, of that happening.
1: Interesting. All right, Meg, thanks. Uh, We appreciate it. Again, some good news today. Uh, We'll take it. Meg Terrell. Uh, You can also catch Abbott Labs co-CEOs tonight at Mad Money 6 p.m. Eastern time. They will join Jim Cramer for an exclusive interview. Coming up here, oil dropping below $20 a barrel overnight as world demand is now forecasted to pledge 20% from last year. Are bankruptcies inevitable at this point? We'll dig into that. Plus, a look at the Fed's unintended mortgage mess and why more Americans can't get lower mortgage rates right now. And finally, New York now has the most coronavirus cases in the country, and it's running out of beds. Today, a Navy ship hospital arrives to try and ease the burden. We have those details now. Welcome back and take a look at crude prices, which dip below the $20 a barrel mark. Uh, We're now back above that. Still, we're down almost six percent on the session. Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin and President Trump speaking by phone this morning to discuss the oil market situation. But what can be done to prevent widespread bankruptcies across the oil patch now? Joining me is Bob McNally. He's founder and president of RapidAn Energy and our own Brian Sullivan as well. It's good to see you both. And um, Bob, I'll just start with you. what do you think President Trump might be trying to accomplish here uh, by speaking with Putin about the oil price situation?
8: Well, President Trump, as he said, finds himself in the odd situation of wanting higher oil prices, very unusual for him. And he understands the fastest way to get OPEC plus back at the table and talking about and implementing cuts is to get President Putin to put Russia back at the table. That's the fastest way, because I think it's been fairly clearly communicated to Washington from Riyadh. We're not going to blink. We're not going to budge until Putin comes back to the table that they left in Vienna on March 6th. So Hmm. President Trump understands that's the way to at least get to a meeting. But to your point, Kelly, it's too late to avoid mammoth stock builds and uh, further price weakness, in my view. We're really debating here how and when we come out of this.
1: I'm gonna come to Brian on that in just a moment, guys. We just got word uh, from Andrew Cuomo, who's holding his daily press conference a little bit later than normal. Uh, Some some updates on coronavirus in this region. Let's listen in. Uh,
9: To give you an update on where we are today, and then we'll take your questions. In terms of the numbers of cases, you see the curve continues to go up, 7195. You see the number of people tested continues to go up. This state is testing more people than any state in the United States, more per capita than China or South Korea. That is a good thing. We want to test. We want to find the positives and we want to find uh, the positive so we can isolate, stop the transmission. We tested 14,000 people yesterday. The number of cases continues to go up, 69.84. Total number of cases, 66,000 cases. Uh, and those numbers are daunting to be sure. You see it's continually, continuing to move across the state of New York. There's only one county now that does not have a COVID case. Anyone who says this situation is a New York City only situation is in a state of denial. You see this virus move across the state. You see the virus move across this nation. Uh, There is no American who is immune to this virus. I don't care if you live in Kansas, I don't care if you live in Texas, uh, there is no American that is immune. What is happening to New York is not an anomaly. There's nothing about a New Yorker's immune system that is any different than any other American's immune system. So in many ways New York is just a canary in the coal mine. What you see us going through here, you will see happening all across this country. Part of what we're doing here is not only serving New Yorkers, but we believe that we're dealing with this pandemic at a level, intensity and density that no one has seen before. And hopefully uh, we'll learn lessons here that we can then share with people across this nation. In terms of the overall numbers, 66,000 have tested positive, 9,500 people are currently hospitalized, 2,000 ICU patients, 4,000 patients are discharged. Uh, That's an increase of 632. Uh, You don't often uh, focus on this line when we have these conversations, but people go into the hospital and people leave the hospital, and that's important to remember. Uh, We've dealt with some really deadly viruses before. We dealt with the Ebola virus. That's not what this is. Uh, Most people will get sick. Most people will get sick and stay home and have some symptoms. That's 80%. About 20% will get sick, need hospitalization, they'll feel better, and they'll leave. Uh, It tends to be those people who are acutely ill, have an underlying illness, who have the most... uh, most problems. Most impacted states, New York you see is at 66,000. New Jersey is next with 13. California is 6,000. So we have 10 times the problem that California is dealing with, 2,739 deaths in the state of New York, total of 148,000 cases. 2,739 deaths.
1: And that's your latest official case count for the New York region there. Of course, one of the hardest hit parts of the country. Governor Andrew Cuomo giving his daily update. Uh, Turning back to the markets, we've just been checking in on the price of oil, which has plunged because demand for crude has dried up. Speaking with Bob McNally and uh, Brian Sullivan about that, Bob just saying that President Trump is in the odd situation of wanting higher oil prices right now. And, Brian, our question to you is whether uh, that can be achieved quickly here if we're right that we're about to hit, you know, max out on global storage um, and if it's too late to save uh, many companies in this industry.
10: There's no way the prices are going to move higher in the near term, Kelly. I mean, Bob would know more about that than I would. I go on Bob's great research and others. Why would they move up? Here's the reality. I'll tell you this much. There are reports uh, from many good sources that in Midland, Texas, and parts of Canada, oil is not trading at $20, Kelly. Oil is trading at 5 to $10. It depends. Remember, we're looking at the contract price for the official futures. There are people in parts of Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, Midland, Texas, that have no place to put their oil. I tweeted out a letter from Plains All-American begging their producers, please don't send us any more oil. You're going to start to see, and Bob could probably comment on this, a lot of pipeline companies issue what they're going to call force majeures, right? Fancy sounding term for basically act of God, unforeseen circumstances. In other words, yeah, we may have a contract But we are not going to take your oil. I can probably go find a barrel of oil somewhere in America right now for four bucks.
1: Wow. Uh, Which is less than we were paying for a gallon of gasoline a little while back, at least in this area. Bob, your thoughts on that?
8: No, Brian's absolutely right. Uh, Look, the lesson of oil history and oil economics is this. is very simple. You either have an effective swing producer that that prevents stuff like this, these price swings, or the market balances by prices swinging from shut-in levels. Where you shut in and choke every available place to store crude. Um, and then demand destruction on the top. So we are rediscovering this month what the truly free market in oil looks like. The low cost producers are producing. Demand is collapsing because of the coronavirus. And we are finding that it's going to be challenging to find places to store crude by the end of the summer. And the market sees that coming. That's why
1: Brian's right. The price is heading lower. All right. Just leave it on that uh, quite clear note. Thank you both. Bob McNally, Brian Sullivan. We appreciate it. Uh, The Fed's effort to help the mortgage market could end up having the opposite effect. Mortgage Bankers Association warning regulators of a potentially large scale disruption. Steve Liesman joins us now with these details. Steve, a lot of people asking me why the mortgage rate isn't lower right now.
11: Yeah, it's very complicated, Kelly. But from the Department of Unintended Consequences, massive Fed purchases meant to help the mortgage market And they did succeed at doing that, ended up hurting another part, in this case, mortgage bankers, uh, independent mortgage bankers, and the MBA, the Mortgage Bank Association, warning that the housing market is actually in danger because of this. These mortgage bankers who provide about 55 percent of all the mortgages in the country – could go out of business. They're getting tens of millions of dollars of margin calls because of these purchases. Let me explain the process. Take a look at the chart. The chart shows the huge purchases by the Fed totaling an unprecedented $185 billion last year. While they did that, the price of the mortgage bonds rose in, again, unprecedented ways. You see their full point increases on a day. This is a market that, on a bad day, it moves 0.2, 0.3 one way or the other. Those are hundred and sometimes even two hundred basis point moves there, so this is just one of the problems in the mortgage business. Uh, you have problems of servicers, people not paying, uh, and the Fed has tried to successfully address this uh, with unprecedented purchases here 's the problem: big moves blow up a normal hedge that mortgage bankers use in order to protect themselves from falling rates. Let me or f- from rising rates, let me show you how the hedge works here. The mortgage banker locks the rate for the consumer. The banker shorts an MBS uh, product there to protect itself from rising rates until closing. But these huge rate drops we saw and increases in prices created massive margin calls. The bottom line is it's getting very difficult for anybody to get a mortgage these days. The MBA writing Sunday to FINRA and the SEC, margin calls on mortgage lenders reach staggering, unprecedented levels, eroding the working capital and threatening their ability to continue to operate. MBA asked for regulatory relief from the SEC and from FINRA in order to keep the broker dealers who write these things from placing these margin calls. But they and others in the industry also want the Fed to reduce these purchases. Kelly, there's some indication in an operation that just closed the Fed may be buying less aggressively. We understand it has heard the outcry from this part of the industry, and it's a little bit like whack-a-mole in the mortgage business right
1: yeah, now. Yeah, no, that's really well explained because there are so many different things happening here, Steve. So bottom line, is the only real solution to, to have the Fed buy less of it, or is there something else that they might be able to come up with?
11: Well, I, I think this regulatory relief that's being asked of FINRA and the SEC could help as well. Um, There could be, you know, when they get done with this, Kelly, there are so many other problems in the mortgage business right now. We haven't even talked about non-agency mortgages. Of course, my colleague Diana Olick has been all over this stuff. You have the problems of servicers. Um, I think maybe finding the sweet spot. The Fed said it's going to buy as much as is needed for smooth operation. It may have gotten there, and maybe now it needs to back off, and we'll see if less aggressive buying could help this problem.
1: Yeah. Uh, so interesting. All right, Steve, thanks. And, uh, of course, not a big surprise given so many of these unprecedented efforts. Steve Leisman. There, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb telling CNBC that you need to see a reduction in coronavirus cases for at least two weeks before lifting some of the restrictions on that population. This after President Trump announced social distancing restrictions will stay in place now through at least the end of April. Let's get to Sue Herrera with all of the headlines at this hour, Sue. Hello Kelly, hello everyone.
12: Here's what's happening. The head of the World Health Organization says the coronavirus pandemic is reminding us how vulnerable and dependent we are on each other.
2: G20 countries to work together to improve the production and equitable supply of essential products shows that the world is coming together and coming together is the only option we have. Firefighters
12: in Barcelona are disinfecting every nursing home in that city after officials found at least one confirmed case at more than half of them. Spain has more than 85,000 cases, the third highest total after the U.S. and then Italy. And in Israel, drive-through virus testing has come to Jerusalem. Roadblocks have also been set up to enforce strict antivirus restrictions. As always, for more on the
1: coronavirus coverage, you can go to CNBC.com. Kelly, I'll have more next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, we'll see you then. Thanks so much, Sue Herrera. Coming up, if your streaming speed is slowing and the quality isn't what it used to be, you're not alone. We'll tell you who's seeing the biggest slowdowns and which services are doing them and why. Plus, Wall Street gets bullish on paint, off-rack, and shampoo today. We'll have those details ahead. And a Navy ship arrives in New York City to help deal with the massive rise in cases. Now the most in all of the country. We'll take you there live. Uh, so to show you what's happening. We're back in two.
11: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
13: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Welcome back with a check on the market. It's about half past the hour. We're higher across the board. The Dow up 443 points, just slightly off the highs, and it is back above 22,000 with a 2 percent gain today. NASDAQ up almost 3 percent. s and up 2.5 percent, and all S&P sectors are higher, led by healthcare, technology, and utilities. In the Dow, it's Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and Merck leading the pack today. Boeing, once again, a big laggard, dropping 8 percent. It's back under $150 a share. And speaking of which, let's check on the airlines, which are also down across the board, unable to follow through on Last week's mega rally, American leading the way lower, down nearly 12 percent today. JetBlue, United Delta, all-seeing declines. Well, usually the site of picnics and concerts, New York City's Central Park looking very different these days. This is some live images of emergency field hospital tents going up as the city braces for a surge in coronavirus cases. And one of the Navy's hospital ships has now docked in New York Harbor, and that's where we find Contessa Brewer. Uh, the ship, Contessa, bringing about 1,000 extra beds to the city.
0: That's right, Kelly. And, you know, the New York City mayor was here today. And behind him, the USNS Comfort, and the mayor said, look, this is a very clear message to New Yorkers from the nation. You are not alone. Thousand beds on board this medical ship, and uh, at least a thousand Navy personnel, medical personnel who will be available for non-coronavirus cases. The way this is going to work is that sick people who don't have coronavirus, so think heart attacks or stroke or other medical ailments will go to the Javits Center and from there they may be sent here on board the comfort the process for keeping it clean is that everybody on board has already been screened for coronavirus and all the patients who come here will get screening for coronavirus this morning I talked to the commanding officer of the medical treatment facility on board the comfort and I asked him about sailing now into the heart of the coronavirus crisis in New York
14: we're in the military, so we're trained for a little bit of everything. Uh, this is not really a departure from what we do. Uh, again, because it, it is a virus, we are taking those extra precautions like our nation.
0: The mayor says that when they started, they had 20,000 hospital beds in New York City. Now the coronavirus outbreak will demand 60,000 beds by the end of May. So imagine that. They would need 40 more of these hospital ships in order to have enough beds. For now, the hospitals are working to increase capacity by at least 50 percent. And these emergency hospitals with
1: 1,000 beds in each borough, Kelly. Wow, and uh, that Central Park uh, support, Contessa, you know, all of this getting up, even as Mayor de Blasio today was saying, they think they're going to need even more beds now.
0: They think that they're going to be ready to accept patients at that Central Park tent that's run by Mount Sinai Hospital. They think they'll be ready to accept patients starting tomorrow there in Central Park. It's such a change, but they say that they're doing it. They're getting beds in cafeterias and beds in parking lots. And they have called up all these doctors and nurses who are retired and asking them to volunteer to help staff all of these other places that are going to receive the overflow. Wow. Uh,
1: such a grim sight, although, you know, maybe ho- uh, hopeful as well to see that support come in from that ship behind you. Contessa, thanks. Yeah. Contessa Brewer for us. Let's go uh, now from what we're seeing uh, to deal with coronavirus victims themselves to what's happening for the millions of people working from home right now. Everything from video games to search to streaming Disney has consumers seeing a pretty big difference in their Internet experience lately. Uh, Julia Borston joins us now with some details of what, Julia, people are, Asking, uh, will all of this break the internet? Looks like it just did. <laughs> Go
13: well, <ahead>. Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: the internet isn't breaking, but the
13: flood of people working from home and attending school from home is taking its toll on internet speeds. Now, a new report analyzing 200 U.S. cities shows 44% are experiencing some slowdown of download speeds. Now, hit the hardest are Austin, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Oxnard, California. All of them are down over 40% from 10 weeks ago. And in New York, speeds have fallen by 24% on average. Now the most popular streamers are now lowering the quality of their video to ease the stress on networks. Netflix, YouTube, Facebook, and Disney have all pledged to reduce the size of their video streams. We're also seeing internet providers help out their customers and not charge anymore. Comcast is lifting its data caps Cox is upgrading its basic broadband users to higher speeds. And AT&T, Verizon, and Charter are all taking steps to increase the capacity in their networks. Kelly, back over to you. You know,
1: I'm a little surprised that it's having so much an effect of an effect. You know, it always seemed to me like there was more bandwidth than we would really be using. Um, they can't really deploy more bandwidth that quickly, can they?
13: Well look they can take there there are a couple of factors here. It's, one is what the companies like Netflix can do to minimize how much bandwidth they are taking up. And so if you have all of a sudden everyone's at home and you have people on four different devices, you know, a family with four different devices all streaming at once, then you can see that a company like Netflix I'm um, trying to really minimize how much space it takes up can have a significant impact of a lot of that traffic is through, say, a Netflix or a YouTube. And then on the other hand, you can have Comcast or Charter do everything it can, not only to not charge people extra if they exceed their data, but also make sure that everything is functioning at the highest possible capacity. We're also seeing the FCC take steps, and we're going to hear more about that today to make sure that they're opening up the spectrum so that all the companies can have as much access as possible. So this is really about everyone working together to make sure that the internet doesn't break.
1: That's a great point, and I know people would appreciate if they didn't have to pay extra right now for for all the bandwidth they're using. Uh, Julia, thanks. (laughs) I love how this segment is illustrating exactly what we're talking about. Julia it for (laughs) us. Coming up, how's this for a growth stat? Online alcohol seller Drizzly saw a 1,000% spike in users in a week. We're gonna talk to the CEO about that next. Plus, Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island are walking out right now, protesting the company's benefits throughout this crisis. And these Amazon workers aren't alone. We've got the details on what's going on across the country next. Welcome back. Let's get to some of today's big calls on the street. And there's some bullish ones. Wells Fargo upgrading TJX, the parent of uh, TJ Maxx and others, to overweight from equal weight while lowering its price target by $6 to $60. They're saying the retailer is a market leader in the off-price space and usually outperforms in economic recovery periods. TJX also got an upgrade to outperform at Credit Suisse today. The shares are up nearly 2% to about $48. Next, Jeffrey is upgrading P&G to a buy with a $128 price target, saying P&G has broad-based portfolio strategies heading into a likely recession and believing it will be a near-term beneficiary of, and I love this term, pantry loading in the U.S., and that China, its second largest market, is in recovery mode. PG is up also nearly 2% today at 112. And finally, Goldman Sachs is upgrading Sherwin-Williams to buy with a $590 price target. While they acknowledge coronavirus will cause a temporary slowdown in activity, they say when conditions normalize, interest rates, which are super low, will provide an incentive for not only new home buyers but also for current ones to refurbish, could benefit the paint company. They also think Sherwin-Williams will benefit from low oil prices on the input side. Uh, SHW up 2.5% to 471 today. Well, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says hazard pay should be included in the next rescue bill. This says warehouse and delivery workers, including at Amazon and Instacart, are staging strikes and walkouts today, protesting a lack of safety measures to protect them from this virus. Deirdre Bosa is here with the very latest on that. Deirdre.
12: Kelly, we are starting to get some color from these demonstrations. The Amazon walkout in Staten Island has so far attracted only a small group of warehouse workers. We're also in touch with Sarah Clark. She's one of the organizers behind the nationwide Instacart strike. She doesn't have numbers to share just yet, but she says that she has been overwhelmed by the response. Now, dissatisfaction from warehouse and delivery workers that has been building well before coronavirus, but it's getting a lot of attention these days as companies like Amazon and Instacart play an ever critical role in getting these critical supplies like groceries and cleaning supplies to more Americans these days. Now, over the weekend, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden tweeting their support for Instacart shoppers. Bernie Sanders noting Instacart's latest private market valuation of $8 billion, voicing really this chief concern from shoppers and delivery workers that they are risking their own health to provide groceries and supplies. Now, companies like the ones I've mentioned, they have done things like extend sick pay leave as well as provide free cleaning and safety materials. But policymakers and a lot of these workers simply say that that's just not enough. And Kelly, this is certainly unlikely to end anytime soon as that tension continues to build and we see more of these actions from workers.
1: I expect you know, we will see a lot of them, Joe. I wonder if the economy gets a lot worse, though, if they'll peter out on their own, because I know everyone walking around with a job right now feels like I'm glad I have it.
12: Yeah. And you take a look at Instacart. They put out a press release last week saying that they're looking for 300,000 additional shoppers. Now, remember, there's a difference between what Instacart is doing and Amazon. Amazon has employees. Instacart, many of them are contract um, contractors, freelance contractors. So they don't get The same protections as employees and that is sort of one of these chief points of tension here they don't get any protections and they feel that some of the times these companies aren't providing even the bare essentials i spoke to a lawyer earlier today that said even though they're not technically employed Instacart and other companies, particularly in the gig economy space, could see a slew of lawsuits if they don't at least act now to do things to protect their employees. And, Kelly, there's a disconnect because the companies think that they're doing enough while the workers don't think that they're doing.
1: enough. Right. And we certainly I mean, I, I, I think I probably speak for everybody saying we'd never so much appreciate it. everybody who's working at the grocery store, everyone who's putting stuff on the shelves, whether they're delivering products or not. It really is essential. Uh, maybe they should merit hazard pay at some point. Deirdre, thanks. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Absolutely. Coming up with just over about a trading day left in the quarter, the S&P and Dow are on pace for their worst first quarter ever. Will we see any relief and when? We're going to get into that next. Dow's up just under 400 points right now, but 100 off the session highs are back in two. Welcome back. Sheltering in place has been pretty lucrative for certain businesses, including liquor delivery companies. Frank Holland joins me with some of the trends we're seeing. Frank?
7: Hey there, Kelly. You know U.S. e-commerce alcohol sales are forecast to grow to as much as $3.7 billion in 2020 because of this coronavirus outbreak, potentially doubling the 22% growth in 2019. The majority of those online alcohol sales are from wine, either direct to consumer or from other channels. But as more and more Americans are using e-commerce to get what they need, the demand for drinks, well, it may be changing. Online marketplace Drizzly, it says new users spiked 1,000% last week. We're now joined by CEO Corey Relis with more on the changing landscape of buying alcohol online. Corey, thank you very much for joining us.
14: Thank you for having me.
7: So, Corey, I have to ask, that's an eye-popping number, 1,000% growth. Can you give us a sense of the dollar amount of new user sales that you get in a regular week and what that number tells you?
14: I think it's easiest to, to talk about it as a reflection on our baseline growth rate. And we were growing significantly prior to the virus changing consumer habits. But in the past three or four weeks, we've actually seen our baseline growth rate increase by about 400 to 450 percent. So unprecedented shift in what we've seen from on-premise to off-premise purchasing. And it's still accelerating over the next, uh, actually, last couple of days. And we expect it to over the next couple of weeks as well.
7: What about the trends that you're seeing? I mean, we know that wine is the majority of online alcohol sales. But has that been changing as more and more people are stuck at home? And in many cases, they can't actually get to a liquor store?
14: We have seen a little bit of mixed shift. I mean, it's mostly been the trends we've been experiencing uh, prior to this moment, accelerating a little bit. So wine has taken a little bit of share at the detriment of beer. And at the same time, you're seeing a lot of the known and well-established brands who have great supply chains and uh, have done well in the three-tier system to be on shelves succeed in this moment.
7: Great. Um, One thing that a lot of people have been talking about is that they don't want people to come to their house and have to interact with them. How have you done that as a marketplace? You're not actually delivering the alcohol yourself. You're relying on your partner retailers to do it. What steps have you taken to make sure that delivery people are safe and also your customers are safe?
14: Yeah, it's a great question. And and safety is obviously the first priority in anything we're doing right now. To uh, explain the model a little bit, Drizzly is a technology platform that allows consumers to shop across local liquor stores. And ultimately, you know, larger selection, comparison pricing, and then the stores do the delivery. So we've been working with our stores to implement contactless delivery, which is the first priority. So things like not having to sign on the screen itself for the uh, recipient of the delivery, uh, being able to check ID at a safe distance of six feet or plus. So these different things to encourage social distancing. and requires a lot of messaging on both sides to make sure the consumers are aware of the changes and that stores are actually following through on uh, what we believe to be the safest practices.
1: Wind of this segment, they're uh, they're telling me how much they enjoy your service, which I admit I hadn't heard of before. So last night I I was making meat sauce and I needed red wine and I I ran to my neighbors for help. Are you telling me that I could have used Drizzly to maybe get something to my house in 10 or 15 minutes time? And what premium am I paying for that? How much does it cost? And how much of a tip, you know, and I'm kind of burned from all the food delivery things and the layers of fees in there. What about you guys?
14: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, The first thing I'd say is that the service is just listing the product and the prices of the stores from which you're purchasing. There's no markup on the bottle itself whatsoever. There is a $499 delivery fee, which goes directly to the store itself to help pay for the delivery and the cost of the labor that goes into it um so net net you're paying a 499 delivery fee and that is it to have the access to not only one store but across multiple stores to see that large selection depending on what bottle you were looking to have last night with dinner um and and then the last thing i'd say there uh as we think about the stores in this time it's a very different sla it's a very very different service they can provide so while we try to get deliveries there within 30 minutes on average uh today's time and i'd like to set the expectation up front it's unprecedented so Mm -hmm. within two hours is what we're looking at right now.
1: Well, we really appreciate the candor. Uh, Corey, thanks so much. Thanks for joining me. And Frank Holland, I want you to know you're the face of delivery booze uh, during this time. <laughs> I, I learned from cocktail Cur- about Cocktail Courier from you uh, and Bacardi and now this. Uh, we appreciate it, Frank. Thanks. Thank you both. Uh, job cuts do continue to mount as companies deal with the fallout of the coronavirus outbreak. L Brands announcing Friday it'll put most store associates on unpaid leave or furlough. SeaWorld saying it'll do the same to more than 90 percent of its workforce. At the same time, casino operator Penn National plans to put 26,000 of its employees on unpaid leave. ZipRecruiter and Rent the Runway are both furloughing and laying off a number of their workers as well. Furniture maker Lazy Boy will put 6,800 workers on unpaid leave as it closes all of its plant stores and distribution centers. And the biggest of the day, as Courtney told us earlier, is Macy's, putting a majority of its 130,000 employees on unpaid leave paid leave beginning of this week. So how long will it take to recover from all of these layoffs? And has the market already priced in this awful news or not? Joining me on the CNBC Newsline right now is Michael Darda. He's chief economist and market strategist at MKM Partners. Mike, it's great to uh, hear from you again. And do you think the market here has temporarily found a bottom?
15: Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You know, I I do think that risk assets have temporarily found a bottom, but whether that's sustainable is largely going to depend on whether policymakers continue to get traction on some of the reflationary policies that have been put into place and also the news flow of the pandemic itself, which has been worse very recently, unfortunately.
1: Right. So we have just today this study, I don't know if you've seen it from the St. Louis Fed, that suggests we could have 50 million people out of work and a 32 percent unemployment rate, which is worse than the Great Depression. What is sort of, and they they admit it's a back of the envelope calculation, it's not super scientific, but what do headlines like that suggest to you?
15: Yeah, I mean... You know, these numbers seem to get scarier and scarier with forecasters almost trying to one-up one another in terms of uh, scary numbers. But uh, the U.S. economy has essentially come to a sudden stop here along with much of Europe. So we're going to see some very nasty numbers. We don't have a lot to go on so far, probably jobless claims, which soared last week. Uh, is the, the first line in what's likely to be a continuation of a raft of pretty negative numbers. Even if you adjust that claims figure for the size of the labor force over time, it was about 60% above previous record highs, you know, the unemployment rate peaked at about 10% uh, at the end of the Great Recession. So, you know, the jump in claims that we've seen, and it's probably going to get worse from here, could be consistent with 16% unemployment. So I wouldn't necessarily write off any of these scary numbers, but the key is how quick do we recover? Eventually, the pandemic will end, right? Even the Black Death ended, the Spanish flu ended, so pandemics do not last forever, We have to have policies in place that are strong enough for a V-shaped recovery so we can get back to full health without another lost decade for the labor market.
1: And you think the Fed could communicate that by saying it's going to get GDP back on uh, its previous growth trend? We can probably show the chart illustrating this, but do you think that would ever work as a communication uh, message to the entire country? I think
15: it would help because one problem central banks face, not just the Fed, but even more acutely in Europe and in Japan, is a lack of credibility in terms of uh, policies staying in place long enough to actually vault inflation and economic growth back to where they would have been you know, before these shocks have hit. And so it it sort of looks like you end up in a liquidity trap pushing on a string. But really, that's simply because markets know full well that central banks have historically pulled back before there's any real inflation. So in this case, I think it could help policymakers get more traction and fiscal policy. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on that. Now, if we want it to be more effective, I think if the Fed did communicate a level path target, whether it be for inflation or inflation plus real growth, nominal GDP that could be quite helpful uh, in ensuring a V-shaped rebound after what's like likely to be a you know pretty brutal recession. Hopefully, it's short-lived.
1: Right, but like you said, keeps us from turning a temporary slowdown into maybe a permanent uh, loss of wealth. Mike, thanks. It's good to check in with you as always. Hope to do so again soon. Thank you, Michael Darda of MCAM Partners. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.